for me, this conversation of shifting that stigma is actually at the root, at the base to how we bought into the lie that women should ever be less than completely at the table. I believe this is one of the roots to it. So for me, I am a lion about this because we must change this. Welcome to the Days for Girls podcast, a show about breaking barriers for women and girls around the world. I'm your host, Jessica Williams, Chief Communications Officer at Days for Girls International. At Days for Girls, we believe in a world where periods are never a problem. We are on a mission to shatter the stigma and limitations associated with menstruation by increasing access to sustainable period products and menstrual health education for all people with periods. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Days for Girls founder and CEO, Celeste Mergens. Celeste has led the organization since its beginning in 2008, driven by 20 years of nonprofit and business management experience. Under her stewardship, Days for Girls has won the SEED Award for Gender Equity and Entrepreneurship, was named as a Next 10 organization poised to change the world by the Huffington Post, is a two-time Girl Effect champion, and was awarded .org of the Year for 2020 by Public Interest Registry. Celeste is a sought-after speaker who has been featured in Oprah's O Magazine and Forbes, among other top-tier publications. She was recently named an AARP Purpose Prize winner, a Conscious Company Global Impact Entrepreneur of the Year, and Women Economic Forum's Woman of the Decade. She loves being with her family when she is not traveling the globe. She is married to her best friend, Don Mergens, and their family includes 11 children, five by marriage, 15 grandchildren, four foster children, and four foreign exchange students, plus many beloved friends who have become family all around the world. I get the privilege of working closely with Celeste on a daily basis. So in this interview, I approached our conversation with a beginner's mind. I hope you are inspired by this conversation as much as I was. Celeste, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have this conversation today. I thought we could start out by talking about how you became aware of menstrual inequity and period poverty and your journey to becoming a passionate entrepreneur and global leader for women and girls. It kind of found me. I had not thought to ask the question of what girls were doing for menstrual care products. And I was working on sustainable solutions for communities in Kenya. I had the opportunity to look for agricultural and water and education and health systems and to be part of that with the Clay Foundation. But I had not asked the question of what was happening for menstruation I had been helping in a school and orphanage whenever I came into town, like every six months or so back to Kenya with solutions and was introduced to this place and learned that they were going without what they needed for menstruation. In fact, they were sitting on a piece of cardboard for days. I knew we had to change that. And, and honestly, the first thing that I thought of was disposable products because that's all I knew. However, I also knew that if you have to choose between food and other resources, especially in scarce settings, 
you're going to choose food and that's the right choice. So I knew that we needed a solution to help the girls leave the classroom and go to school and have the confidence of their days. But I didn't know yet what the alternative could be that they could count on month after month. We did innovate the first washable pads. And I have to tell you, they were not very well designed. And I can say that because I designed them. And and it was considering that, you know, pads are white and they look like a pad. So this pad first design was hard for them to use because that who wants to hang out a menstrual pad that has a stain on it to dry in your front yard, especially in a place where there's such stigma and shame. And I did know, however, to ask and to listen to what they needed and how they were working. But regardless of that limitation of the first design, we also, I asked the question, who's teaching them about what a period is? And they said, no one, you can do that. And I was not yet a global expert in menstrual health and reproductive health. And I was a little panicked by that, but, and honestly tried to seek someone who was already teaching it locally, anywhere, any kind of program, kept reaching out, couldn't find anything, not even with the World Health Organization, not even with anywhere I looked, was there a curriculum that we could incorporate that could be led locally. So we had the first conversation and I invited people from Kenya that I knew to join us and we're in the room. Volunteers had stepped up to make washable supplies. Imagine having to make 500 washable menstrual care kits from start of design to finish in just three and a half weeks and volunteers literally sewed till their fingertips bled because our very first design you hand sewed on snap. So that's a very treacherous activity. <laughs> and so imagine all these volunteering stepping up, eight huge duffels brought with us. We come into the room, only 250 could fit at a time. And in this echoing room with 10 roofs, these excited girls gathering and we're having this conversation um, about their health and wellness and what a period is. And they're actually, their bodies are amazing and that they matter. And we have this beautiful conversation and that, and they received their days for girls kits and they're so animated and excited. And here comes the first set of girls and I'm near the door and they walk up with these big smiles and say, thank you so much because before you came, we had to let them use us if we wanted to leave the room and go to class. And I'm hoping that doesn't mean what I feared it meant. I asked them, please, could you meet with us afterwards? Can you promise me that we can talk about this? Because I had another 250 girls waiting to come in. We had the sound of everybody being excited was echoing off the tin roof. I couldn't even hear them very well. And when we finished, they were waiting and they confirmed that they were being sexually exploited in exchange for a single disposable pad. And that was the moment Days for Girls was born. Mm -hmm. So you just knew in your heart, you, you couldn't walk away and you had to do something. So tell me what you did. Like, you go back to the United States and I, I'm just like, how did you rally and mobilize volunteers to help you 
sew these pads and help you innovate? Like, did, did you just have, like, did you get your family and your friends involved? Like, what was that? Take me there. What, what did that look like? We sure did. And honestly, Jessica, people didn't believe it. Like I came back horrified, right? That they were being exploited, that the, that was the reality at this place. And, and, and so I told them, you know, it made a huge difference what you did. Yes, they got their days back. Now they can go to class. And this is what was happening before. And people were, of course, really disturbed by that. But they also, some of them would say that can't be true. In 2008, that just can't be true. The girls would have to go without to the extent that they would be exploited for menstrual products. And what we didn't know was how broadly true that is and how all the many costs that menstruators pay around the planet for something so basic to our biology that connects us all. And what I did was what I always do, invited people to ask. And so I would ask them, you know, don't take my word for it, please. If you know someone that's working in a place where this may be a reality, even in your own neighborhood, ask, what are people doing? And of course, more and more, we come back, you know, I'm from Bosnia and actually we have this problem there and, oh, I just checked with my friends in India and they have this problem there and I knew how to code. So I made a website. This was back before you could just have one uh, made. It was just starting to be where you could get a little template to make one. And so we made our first website and made it open source. Here's, here's um, what we're doing. This is how we're doing it from the very first education was part of it. And it proved to be pivotal that it was part of it. So we encouraged everyone, let's have this educational conversation. Um, and we started to codify that as well. And that too became informed by the feedback of those we served. So it became, if you will, crowdsourcing of everyone coming together to say, I'm choosing this. What I always say is the impossible is happening. People were talking to strangers about periods Back before this was a thing people talked about, they were talking to people in lines and at grocery stores and in their groups and when they were purchasing fabric to make more. And they were stepping up in a way that is kind of unprecedented. Not only were they using their time and their own hands, but also willing to advocate about the need and also willing to invest their funds in a really big way. And, and we just kept inviting more to join in let's change this. And honestly, from the beginning to me, it felt both terrible that this could possibly be happening. Of course, even everywhere in the world, what do homeless women do? What does any family anywhere do when they're choosing between food, shelter, or hygiene? How do we make solutions that can last month after month became part of the clarion call from the very beginning? Like, how do we make this product as good as it can be so it's easy to use? And we used it. I used it because it was, if it's not something I would use, then certainly no one else should be called to use it. We need something that's not only reliable, but actually works. And so that call went out all through the world. And yes, impossibly, thousands joined in and our family. And we moved from, we were in 
on the dining room table. Then we moved to um, churches or community centers and, and it moved down to my basement. The first 5,000 days for girls' kids were assembled in a very small farmhouse basement. My husband said, um, I was down there and he says, what you doing? Because it was his man cave. And I said, I'm thinking that this part right here, we should do days for girls, just this quarter of it. And he said, but honey, it's the man cave. And I said, <laughs> actually right now from now on this part is the she castle <laughs> <laughs> and then volunteers work to um bring like pallet wood and insulation and we made our 1927 barn into the lower part into a working space where we could have shelves and 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 work together with a larger group and and things kept growing as people just kept standing up and saying, this is something we can change in our lifetime. And that's the hopeful thing that to this day wakes me up early, ready to start. There are so many things that are hard to change in this world, but reversing menstrual inequity and the gender inequity that happens as a result and the wounds, if you will, the body pain that we share as a wound around the world about this inequity can heal is something as small as a pad and education opening doors to end that inequity and to bring shatter the stigma and shame. It's amazing to me, even today. <laughs> I think, um, you know, Celeste, I come from a communications background and I've been in so many rooms where people like you saw a problem and they had a solution and they wanted to activate the world, but they, they just didn't know how to reach out and get people involved in their movement. And you seem to have done this. Like, so like there are over 70,000 volunteers now, um, you know, since 2008 that you've grown, like, I think you take for granted how amazing like it is that you were able to mobilize all these people. And I want to dig in and just go, how did, like, were you speaking to these people in their homes and, and like, where were you getting access to all these amazing people who were just so willing to just join your movement and, and, you know, donate their time and their skills and their homes to you. Isn't it amazing? So Honestly, I don't see that as me. I see it as the power of we. I see it as I could share what I saw and what I experienced and then invite them to consider how that might relate to them. And honestly, never felt like if they said, oh, no, really, I'm into the Humane Society or, oh, no, I really care about arts. Never felt like, oh, no, but you have to come with us. I felt like we're those who feel called to do this, drawn to do this, will step up. And, and so I just told everybody and let themselves select. And then what happened was that I believe in the power of invitation. And I just invited them, would you like to help in this? Would you like to change this in the world? And from the very beginning, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I could see that that this actually could end, that every girl everywhere, period, that every menstruator having what they need and not being shamed was possible. I remember I was in a room uh, and a dear friend was doing for our first board a consultation on like our strategy and, 
And she said, okay, so what do you feel like is a measurable achievable goal that you should set? And I, and I said, every girl everywhere, the period part hadn't come in yet. And she said, <laughs> let me describe measurable and achievable. <laughs> and then she said, what? I said, well, actually, okay, how about 20 chapters by next year? And she goes, now that's more like it. How many do you have now? And I said, one. <laughs> and she said, uh, Celeste, and and you know that we hit 20 uh, just less than a week before a year later. And, and the thing is that it really is about the power of that invitation, but I could see it, Jessica. Every girl everywhere period to me is not about days for girls reaching every girl. I knew that this would take connections, that this would take a movement that would invite many organizations, many people and partners, and that it would be about what we can do as a collective to shift this on our planet, not just days for girls. So when more and more organizations come on board like they are today, you know, wanting to take on a facet of it. That's a huge celebration of the real thing that I, to this day, see clearly. To me, we are not uh, working on a subjective here. To me, this is already a done deal. We're just taking the steps to get to that day because this is just about shared conversation, agreements, and suitable solutions that work and repeat. And, and so for me, the gathering of people was always about, are you one of the people that wants to change this on our planet? And if not next, because the tribe we're gathering to do this, these powerful, fearless menstrual advocates are, are just unusual and impossibly beautiful to me. And, and we're just sorting for them and they have the wind and the strength and the will to go there. So it's it's been about inviting. Mm, I love that. I am, as you know, um, I'm so inspired by you and the work that you've done. And I I think it's just phenomenal what you've accomplished. And you know, for those who maybe don't know a bit about your your upbringing, your childhood, I think it might be really interesting to talk about that because. I want to know specifically, like, where did you get this capacity for this vision, this, the resolve, the perseverance that you bring to your work? Like, where does that come from? I have a gift that I'd never called a gift when I was young. I, I had experience of poverty and even hunger and even going without home, a home for parts of my upbringing. And, and, um, trauma, right? And there's this, there was a moment that I got when I was about, I mean, just thinking about it a lot over the years, and I only recognized it about four years ago, maybe as as a pivotal moment for me, I was about five years old. I was walking along a path at a state park, and we were living there right then, in transit to another place. And, and and I could, I can still feel the warmth in the sidewalk as I was walking along. And you know how the sand could sometimes be sparkly as you're walking along. And I was looking at that and this dog walked into my view, a little white fluffy dog and it had a rhinestone collar and it led up to the owner's hand. And I, as I looked up, she had a half eaten apple in her hand and, and not to be dramatic, but it'd been a while since I'd had any fruit or food at that moment. 
and she threw it into the dumpster that happened to be near where we were standing. And I followed the arc of it and hit the bottom of the dumpster. And I, and, and I was trying to decide if I could get in there and climb back out. Just had decided I couldn't. And, and to retrieve that apple, I, I just couldn't. And then you have, you know, how you have that feeling in the back of your neck that someone's staring at you. I had that feeling. I looked up at her and she was still standing there. And she's looking up and down, looking that up and down look that you get sometimes. And and I could feel it was like a mirror turned around and I could see what she saw when she looked at me. And I could see that she saw a little girl with dirty feet and clothes that were too small. And and I could just feel in her eyes and and it was such a moment. And and all of a sudden in me, she turned to walk away, but my whole being was like, I am not from here. I am not this place. I am not my clothes. I am not what you see. And I used to think of her as Corella DeVille. Remember from 101 Dalmatians? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to think of her as that with her little <laughs> mini skirt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> had a mini skirt, not a long fur coat. And and I I would think about it. It was such a moment of pain for me, honestly, for a lot of years as I'd run the track back through my head. And it was just a couple of years ago that I realized that moment could have, for all I know, be an angel because I got the gift of someone looking at me in the eyes that young. And this moment that asked me, are you the poor girl? Are you the girl without a home? Are you the hungry one? Or are you something more? And and that moment, I got to decide. No, no, I'm not these things happening to me. I am not. And so my life, and I even went without period products, but didn't even think to call it out because we don't talk about this. But my, my life has been centered since then on standing in ways that helped me overcome the trauma, standing in ways that invited others to be all that they could be and standing witness that we are not our circumstances. For good or for ill, we are so much more than that, no matter what we're going through. It is our responses. It is is what is possible within us that matters, not what's going on around us. It is not defining of who we are or, nor our possibility. So when I come into any situation, I want to hear their wisdom. I want to hear their viewpoint. And I want to do, if you will, the dance of bringing together both of our strengths when invited to and invite them to and build and hold with them absolute assurance that what they expect as outcome can happen and to bring together sustainable solutions so that it can be their own in strength for a tomorrow they envision became part of my very DNA from very early on. Mm, I love that. I just got chills and, uh, you know, and it so resonates with me because, and I think probably a lot of women who are listening and men listening and um, just that, piece of I'm not my circumstances and I am so much bigger than that. And 
uh, I think you are a, a shining example of that. And so are, you know, millions of the women that Days for Girls has served. So um, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, I want to go back to something you said in the very beginning, you were talking about how you went to Kenya and the girls there at the orphanage inspired you to, to start Days for Girls. So you came back to the United States and did you know how to sew at that point? Like, okay. I want to, I want to hear about that. What was your like back? Cause I don't know how to sew. And I honestly, I don't know any women that do. And so I think it's amazing that you know how to sew and you mobilized all these sewists all over the world. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? I know they're kind of miraculous. It was, if it were 10 years earlier or later, maybe that group of people that knew how to sew wouldn't have been able to in a time of their life, they could just dive in and more people are learning. A lot of people have said, I learned to sew so I could be part of this. What's interesting is I did. I learned to sew when I was probably eight. My mother taught me. I would, um, I sewed on a treadle machine, which who learns to sew on a treadle machine? I did. And so all over the world where they often use treadle machines, that's something familiar to me. And, and I would make little dolls and I would make doll clothes and I would make clothes clothes. Um, I actually could sew anything I can see. So I can make a wedding dress, a tent, uh, anything that I can see, I can pattern out. So uh, so this pad wasn't difficult. What's interesting to me, Jessica, is pretty early on, I had this really strong impression that my role with Days for Girls was not to sew, that it was to call people together and to organize. I'm so strong that sometimes <laughs> to this day, when I go to sit at a sewing machine, I, I have this like check in, you know, oh yeah, it's okay to sew because <laughs> I really like to sew. <laughs> but I've been a quilter for years, like made quilts. I love to dog, double dog dare myself to come up with innovative pattern combinations and color combinations and make a sea, ma- sea um, mermaid garden out of pieces of cloth. And 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 it felt very strongly that for this season, it wasn't my role to sew. Yeah. Yeah. So with Days for Girls, one of the things that um, you know about my background is that uh, I've been passionate about uh, women's empowerment and empowering women and girls around the world for a long time. And this has been something I've dedicated uh, my my personal resources and my time and energy to. And it was interesting because I never came across the issue of menstrual inequity. It just never hit my radar. And when this opportunity opened up at Days for Girls for this position, uh, was the first time I'd ever learned of this. And I was shocked. <laughs> I was uh, ashamed that I had assumed um, that, you know, it just, it just, it just never crossed my radar. And I've heard that from so many women out there. And the moment it's like the moment people realize that this is an issue and there's a solution that we can do. They get so like ready to get involved. And, and and I see, I can see that as like part of how you've been able to build this movement and this collective and this, this global community, this network, um, because it is such a, it's such a base level need and it's such a human right 
that women need, right? And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that as like how the Days for Girls movement, the menstrual health movement fits into women's empowerment and the feminist movement. It's still phenomenal to me. I I don't think it's indicative of the stigma and shame around this. It's Mm -hmm. so big everywhere that we just don't talk about it, but even more, don't really even hold a place for it in our consciousness at a base level. And it should be the opposite. Like we should be celebrating this. I've had people say, you can't ask people to celebrate it. It can be painful and inconvenient. It's like, but can't we? Can't we? It's without periods, there would be no people. Like this connects every one of us. Why can't we shift it to celebration? And what's become more and more clear to me over the years, and I I just feel strongly this is no exaggeration, that many of the gross um, abuse that has happened to women starts with this premise that they are less than. And one of the pieces that sent us from the table was not having what you needed for menstrual care. Literally, don't be here. Don't be present. You don't have a solution. That finding a solution wasn't primary. Is a place where this gap widened. And I have to tell you, we once were approached by a group of Um, women, professional women who had created a network that they would invest money in and the proceeds of their profits would be given annually to a nonprofit, a few nonprofits, one of them the primary beneficiary. Days for Girls, after a lot of talking and presentation, was chosen by this group of executive powerful women to receive a significant amount of funding. We were so excited. And then I got an email that came back just an email that said, we actually have decided that we just can't do this. We can't make menstruation the thing that we're investing all in as and only our second investment. It just will send a statement. We face so much of the glass ceiling being so difficult to break through. And then to identify with one of the things that has held us back, we just can't do it. We apologize. And I was stunned that these professionals who had gone through the process had to step away. This was early on. Uh, There wasn't as much awareness about this, not as many conversations about this. But on the other hand, is that surprising? Because truly there's that much stigma and shame. So if you live in Nepal and you're in Western Nepal and you literally can't be in your home because you're considered untouchable and that you'll bring a curse on the family. And if you are the woman who was a carefree girl, able to go to school, and then you start this process, then everything we associate with blood is injury or illness. And and you're told that now you can't be with your family when you're doing this. You're, You're unclean. You could bring a curse on their family. You could cause ill fortune. Someone could even die. Livestock could die. Um, and you're literally under a crawl space or or with the oxen or in the forest or in, in a shed made just for this time. And it's cold. And you're at risk of literally dying of exposure or snake bites, the very least being bit by insects and alone and cold. If you hold that, how do you feel anything but 
less than, if your basic biology is betraying you, for me, this conversation of shifting that stigma is actually at the root, at the base to how we bought into the lie that women should ever be less than completely at the table. I believe this is one of the roots to it. So for me, I am a lion about this because we must change this. This isn't just something to celebrate changing and to know we can change. We must because we need everybody to show up with the full strength of every day with dignity and hope, no matter where they're from, no matter what their circumstances, and certainly no matter what their gender is. And this, this held powerful women in a belief that they were less than. And to this day, the fact that it's hard to talk about only strengthens that lie of inequity. This is something we can shift with correct solutions that work and conversations and education. How amazing is that? I love, love, love that this is one of the things that was at the root because this, this one we've got. Yeah, I love that too. And, you know, and I have you to thank for teaching me that, Um, you know, and I, I liken it to, and I'm curious what you think, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, I liken it to, you know, the basic level of like safety and security and food and water and Mm -hmm. a roof over your head. Like it is at that basic level. And if you can't overcome that, right, then how are you going to achieve all these like higher level uh, things in your life, like self-actualization and all of that? So Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think about that. Oh, 100% agree with you. Of course. It, it is a basic human right and and so pivotal to women. Do you know, all over the world, women are expected to go work in the field and hold primary responsibility for the children and manage their menstruation without what they need or um, do all the things and be cheerful and keep going and to also have to deal with not having what you need and stigma and shame about something that takes three to five or even more days of your life, and you're literally isolated or not able to be in confidence, it's 3,000 days in a woman's life on average, almost eight years. Although personally, I always would have said it was more than that. Um, I, I believe that this is one of those key foundational things that if we ensure women have it and menstruators have it, then they can stand stronger. I am so glad we're having this conversation now. And what if we'd had it sooner? And the other piece for me that comes to mind, if this is one of the keys to reversing cycles of poverty, inequity, and violence, and I believe it is, got a lot of evidence for that. What other keys are we missing because we are not asking the questions? What other things are we missing? I'm just so glad we found and are addressing this one. So when you are thinking about the future of Days for Girls and your mission to reach every girl everywhere, period, what do you think is the biggest challenge standing in your way from achieving that goal? I think that it's the ongoing, actually, it's going really well. If you want to know the truth, (laughs) 
governments are starting to convene for this. Multilaterals are starting to more and more people are talking about this, more and more awareness about this. In 2015, NPR declared that the year of the period and they didn't mean punctuation. Like it's building. In my opinion, and and with the strategy of Days for Girls, where we feel the next piece is so important and, and a full half of what we do is to help local leaders own the solution. So making sure that that local leaders are able to be ambassadors of health, uh, lead their community in shattering the stigma, lead the conversations, and to do what they wouldn't naturally do for free because they've experienced the consequences of not having what they need. Um, like my friend Alice, who couldn't sit for exams well because she didn't have a pad and didn't do as well on the exam as she would have. Otherwise, she's an enterprise leader with Days for Girls and is in Kenya. And she is employing many people to make Days for Girls kits and to call on her community leaders and organizations and Days for Girls supporters to join her in helping the community leaders themselves talk about this, be educated. There are photos of her standing on a table in front of a field of people and holding up educational materials. And you could just see her whole being is all in. A really important part of this to us is making sure that there is income possibility for people who are willing, able, and completely dedicated to shattering the stigma where they are. So it's owned by them, led by them, and advanced by them. This proved truly important during COVID because nobody could get there with solutions and, and often uh, disposable single-use products were even less useful. And by the way, the very first time we did the distribution, I had provided some disposable to get them through until we brought washable and there's no place to throw them away. There's there's no disposable system. So they were clogging the latrines and piled against posts and people were reusing them, a disposed product to wash it and put it on a window seal and try using it again. So stigma and health and limitation, having a supply you need to count on is important. And women like Alice and others like her and men all over the world gathering to say, um, we are leading this. We know what works for our community. And we're calling on our community members to, to expand how many people have what they need and to shatter the stigma. That's, that's where we're at right now. And the strategy and pieces to make that scalable. So there's just add more uh, resources, keep going, is the piece that we're on right now. And it's working. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit about the uh, local leaders and how Days for Girls is uh, using that solution to reach every girl everywhere, period. Um, how does that, how does that work? Take me into that, um, that program, that system and how you're like accessing these local leaders and getting them engaged and involved. They find us, nonprofits find us to partner or they find us and learn about us. Often this is something they've really been seeking for how to do and and then they lean into it. Days for Girls supporters make it possible for them to um, start their enterprises and the education that we've developed over the years with over 70 iterations. Our kids have had 30 iterations um, so that 
inclusive conversation about user feedback driving what is. Um, we share that with them, and then they become the leaders to do the education. They become the leaders to to bring everyone in, and it's not easy. Honestly, it's a little bit like asking an Avon lady to not only be the person going door to door, but also and, and inviting a whole field of people, but also uh, to make the lipstick, mix the chemicals and decide what color to put in. Because they're while we help with supplies, supply chain is our Tetris level 12 3D because, you know, getting consistent qualities, making as much of it local as we can while making sure that these are durable and comfortable is an important part of the puzzle. We also have volunteers that all over the world that you described earlier that are just phenomenal. And what they do is make Days for Girls where they are with volunteers, send them with organizations that are already working in communities and know it and, and are expert in working with that community, and then make sure that the education is part of it. We have had to, as this movement grows, pivot to identifying zones uh, Phenomenal team members have helped comb out which parts of the planet are already being held really well by strong enterprise leaders. So we they've got this, just help make sure uh, that conversation of what is needed to support them is there. And the volunteers are now pivoting to things like urgent needs, like refugees or emergent situations, and also places in the world where the menstrual health conversation is not yet as developed to, to go into those communities and focus there and really seed the opportunity awareness. Because when you first hear about a washable pad, you think of girls use and menstruators use um, corn hubs, newspaper, mattress stuffing, feathers, leather straps, um, holes dug in the sand, uh, all sorts of solutions up to and including um, cow dung that is splattered and they shake out the bugs and then break into little pieces and use that as a pad. So all over, they're using whatever they can use and often suffering the consequence of health issues, of no, knowing it doesn't work. And one of the things they'll often use is fabric folded up, but not secured and not having a moisture barrier to keep it from leaking. So they literally have trouble sitting for fear of a stain, have trouble walking for fear it will fall out. So there's, so not, when we say washable, the mindset is that that's what we're talking about. And it's not until they see a product that women like them innovated with their feedback that they go, oh, no, this is, this really can work for me, um, that they can start the process of leaders, like you described, how do we find them? They start showing up and saying, I I want to do this. I want to help with this. And it's their initiative that really leads the way to them being identified as a strong leader for their community, a strong voice and a powerful set of hands that is inviting their community. Let's get this done. <laughs> so I know you get asked a lot, uh, do these local leaders, are they running for-profit businesses? Can you explain that model? That's the goal. I mean, that's the goal. And sometimes people are like, what? They need them. How can they afford them? But here's the truth. If they're not, they're not making an empire, <laughs> only if you're talking about 
their community being stronger, being an empire, then in that case they are. But they're not making it, they're making enough money that they can make the product, keep it affordable, and afford to keep doing it while caring for their family. And by making it local, they don't have to go to a factory somewhere to work. They don't have to go away from their family. They can be in their community with their family, already having other things they're responsible for with their family. They don't have to travel to do this. They they can do it where they are and just travel when they're doing the education piece. And by being paid to make them, this makes it so they can do that and have a good living. For instance, I was once in Uganda and a woman named Christine was talking to me and I asked her the question, how do you, how's it going? And how do you feel about doing your enterprise and how has it changed things for you? And as she talked with me, she said, my community knows who I am and they listen to me. My family can eat every day and my children can go to school. I was surprised about the order that that was in. I'm so grateful for all those impacts for her and how significant that her first statement was people, my community knows who I am and they listen to me. I, I think all the facets of that, that change in lives are very important. And, and that is, yes, they make money and they turn it into wellness for their family and wellness for their community. And they use it as the fire to keep the engine going and to reach more. You truly are turning periods into pathways, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I often say um, you even did it for me because, you know, I was hungry for a job like this, just, you know, aching in my bones to like work for an organization like this. And so um, I truly feel like menstruation has given me a job. And so, um, you know, and a, lo- and a lot of women at Days for Girls feel that way. I know. So it's really, it's really amazing. Um, Celeste, you get asked a lot, um, because I see you speak a lot and, um, and people often say, well, well, I don't understand why, why not just like ship them a bunch of disposables or like give them menstrual cups. And so can you explain why washables are so powerful? You know, menstrual cups are actually a great solution. And it's one of the solutions we offer because they last up to 10 years, take little water, but honestly, only about three to 4% of those we serve are open to using them, um, either culturally or physically, or um, just aversion to inserting things, or um, just personally not yet ready to try that. And so you have to meet people where they are. And the truth is, if you look at aisles of menstrual products, it's a big aisle. <laughs> there are a lot of different kinds of products there. And so to expect one solution to work for everyone is not a realistic expectation. And to not offer a washable solution is, I think, a global thing that is equally important to shift. If you have something you can count on month after month, if it's this little bundle of of a pad that can be in your glove compartment or your purse, and no matter what happens to you economically, Um, supply chain resources in your community that you have something you can count on is is freedom. I was once in Nepal and and a woman was explaining what it was like for her to experience chapati and she she explained insects bite us for five days and 
And for five days, we can't eat what our family's food is for what our family's eating. For five days, we are alone. And and getting to see her, see a washable pad that she could count on month after month. And what if instead of having to be isolated to practice Chopati, what if she could just ritually cleanse this and, and use this for her days? And she said, then we will be free. If you don't have what you need, it's truly bondage by basic of your basic biology. And, and how can it not affect your confidence? So women and menstruators and girls all over the world should have what they need. And to have it be a washable alternative is not only less likely to have toxic chemicals, not only uh, com more comfortable for some, not only something she can count on month after month, but also better for the environment. And so does that mean everybody should just use washables? I think everybody should have what they can count on. Everybody should have what works for them. And washable pads are a smart choice. And, and our innovation had to go through 30 iterations because we needed to make it so that it could wash with little water. And so it didn't look like a pad, so she could hang it out with confidence and that it had stains. And so they're colorful and they're innovative and they do wash with little water and dry quickly. Um, we don't have not had a lot of innovations for menstrual care and we need to because this is half of our population on this planet. It should be like a thing we're going all in for and washable solutions, in my opinion, are the future. When you think back on the the evolution of Days for Girls, you know, it kind of started with mobilizing these volunteers. So I'm imagining like ladies just sitting around the sewing table, you know, sewing, um, maybe mm -hmm. some men too. And, um, and, and then it evolved to, okay, you've got the social entrepreneurs, the local leaders. Um, is there ever, I, I know some people ask, like, is there ever a vision for creating like a factory or like a for-profit model where you're selling these washable Days for Girls pads um, to the general public? Such a good question. Yes, yes, there is. We have a brand new iteration that um, is also patented and we're so excited about exploring it to make it available to the general public. There's a team working on that launch and, and feasibility right now. And we feel like that's an important part. The proceeds will go to Days for Girls International and they'll be available to the general public. And it's also about showing that washable solutions are a smart choice no matter where you live. We also are gearing up for larger manufacturing capacity in Kenya right now, actually. And the reason for that, that doesn't negate the importance of, to your question earlier about, you know, why don't we just ship in a lot of pads made somewhere else? Um, the local leaders are important for all the reasons we've talked about, and also so they can stay in place and not have to go to a factory, that they can hold their roles and be confident and do the things where they can be leaders in their community, but not have to travel and leave their family unless they want to. Um, but also at the same time, being able to meet larger 
orders from government and from multilateral organizations of 90,000 at a time, not just 100 or 500, um, is a combination that that we're aware of that manufacturing facet is important. It's one of the things in our future. And bringing that together with everywhere having the option of a really positive period product that is adjustable to their personal flow and needs and also cheerful and also comfortable is, is an important part of kind of bringing it back full circle. So yes, however, we are absolutely all in with the belief that the local enterprise leader is still just as important that having it be locally held in a way that she is employed and not having it once in Zimbabwe, there was a woman who was um, an early ambassador women's health. This was 2010. And I learned afterwards when I checked in with them that she had been skipping meals so she could get on use meal money or food money to go get on buses, to go to schools, to teach them about their periods and to get products to them. And she was a person who was on antiretroviral meds for HIV. And, and so her being able to eat made her medication more effective. This woman was literally risking her life to go increase menstrual equity and stability for her communities. And, and making sure that that local piece is in place makes it possible for people like her to do it, but also sustain a quality life. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's amazing what women will do to support other women. I tell you, it is, it's pretty phenomenal. All right, Celeste. So um, I want to wrap up, but before we go, how can people who want to help Days for Girls, what's the, what's the number one thing that Days for Girls needs right now? How can they help? Funding. I know everybody says that, but this is true. We have a solution that's working having more people show up who want to invest in this future equity um, and can be helping pass the word. So you can follow us on social media. You can tell other people about this. You can be one of the impossible people that talks to complete strangers about periods or your friends and family. That's even easier for some of us. And, and you can also volunteer at a chapter or team. Uh, when COVID opens up again, you'll be able to like help with your own two hands. You can look at our through our website and see which piece of our work really resonates with you because you don't have to be a sewer to work with Days for Girls. You don't even have to be comfortable talking to complete strangers, but you can be part of the shift in the world. So there's a place for everybody at this opportunity to make a difference in the world. Well, I have just enjoyed this conversation so much. It's been fun to approach it with a beginner's mind and um, <laughs> and and go back to some of some of these questions and dive deeper. So, thank you so much for your time, Celeste, and for being such an inspiration and a model for women and men all over the world. My pleasure. The Days for Girls podcast is produced by Days for Girls International. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit daysforgirls.org forward slash podcast. If you'd like to support the work we do on the show, leave a rating or a review wherever you listen, subscribe to the show and share episodes on social media or with your friends. 
to learn more about Days for Girls and to join our global movement, please visit daysforgirls.org. Thank you for listening. See you next time.